on this episode. I don't ever think that I really anticipated quite what what a really, really, really hot fire would really do, and it just turned the building to, to ash. A picnic in the ashes. This is the Humidity Podcast. Hello, I'm Tim McDonald. So I was in Australia at the beginning of this year, a little holiday and, well, what turned into a lot of reporting on the massive bushfires. And during the course of this, I was at Borley Point. It's maybe three hours' drive south of Sydney. And I got a very interesting invite from the parents of a close friend who happened to live there. So they have a ukulele group that meets every week on Friday afternoons because, well, of course they do. Now, hosting duties rotate between the members, and one of them is a man named Rod Hayes, an architect who built his dream home on a mountaintop. But he lost his house in the fires towards the end of 2019. But even with the house turned to twisted metal, he was still adamant that it was his turn to host. Today I thought it would be great to get everybody together and do it up here because everybody hadn't seen it. Yeah. And I wanted people to see it because I wanted people to understand that you can't just give it, leave it in your imagination. You don't get it. Right. You've got to come and see it. You've got to feel it. And when you do it, you kind of go, well, you can't deny it anymore. You can't sort of imagine that, you know, it's not as bad as you imagine. Somebody said to me, oh, I came down here, I didn't think it was that bad, you know. I said, well, go and have a look at my house. Mm-hmm. That'll, that'll tell you what it can be. Yeah. And they did, and they went and walked away, you know, very downcast by the idea. You yeah. know, but, you know, once you accept that this is what it is and get rid of it and start again. So my friend's parents sent me a wonderful set of directions to get up the goat track to this place. I'll just read you the last sentence. Go straight, do not turn or veer right, and you'll eventually come to a group of lunatics sitting in the middle of a ruin. That will be us. Call if necessary. When I arrived, actually a bit late to catch the ukulele, it was immediately clear that the damage to the house was total. It was nothing more than a pile of bricks, broken glass and warped metal. And the shed almost looked as if it was still standing, but somehow everything inside it had been destroyed. The trees hadn't bounced back either. Those grey eucalyptus trunks were still a weird sepia tone colour. Oddly beautiful, but also desolate and kind of sad. It was an older crowd. Most of the guests were boomers. They talked about their grandkids, beach houses and what they were watching on Netflix. And they talked about where they were sitting on a mountaintop in the ruins of a house. And the way Rod describes it, it really was quite a house. It was a, quite a large house. It was completely recycled out of rec- materials that I'd collected from all around New South Wales. And the main thing was that I had two, uh, five very big trusses that came out of picture theatres in Goulburn. Oh, and wow. they, were, they, were very, they were nine metres across and I had five of them and they were big Oregon beams, Oregon that you can no longer buy in the, this country. Yeah. And I let them be the... Um, be the um, the uh, the thing which determined the size of the building. So there were two big big spaces. This was two levels in here, yep. and it was nine meters by twelve meters. And the other one was three levels, and it was also nine meters by twelve meters. Mm-hmm. And that had bedrooms and studios and things. And I'd only just finished turning the building into two parts so that my daughter and grandson could come and stay with me because she's a single mum. And we just finished a couple of days before the fires came and uh, they came and took the whole lot. Every now and then you'll see someone on TV interviewed after a fire or a flood who tries to shake it off. 
They say something like, it's only stuff. And yeah, of course, it's more important to save lives than possessions, but, well, surely stuff matters too. It isn't true. It isn't only stuff. Um, I'm in a lot of houses, that is the case, but that wasn't the case here. And, and I, you know, I think about people's sheds, for example, you know, they're very, very significant buildings. A lot of people denigrate shed, oh, it's just a shed, you know, but people have their hearts and souls and storage and ideas and creativity and so on in their yeah. sheds, really, really important to their lives. Yeah. You know, that Williamson song, All Australian Boys Need a Shed, is a really important idea. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and also, I mean, this house was like my shed. It was full of studio and books and creativity and art and poetry and gatherings and community and people were here eating like we did today. People gathering here all the time, you know, the ideas and the flow of stuff that happens. And it's, so it's never just stuff, yeah. not in this house anyway, and yeah. certainly not in that shed. Yeah. You know, well, wonderful. When, when you hear that, I think sometimes people are trying to convince themselves. Rather yeah, than... but, uh, but a lot of people have said to me, I mean, we had a gathering at our choir and someone said, oh, it's just stuff. And I said, I'm sorry, it's not. Yeah. You know, it's, it was vital to my philosophy. Yeah. And you can't, you know, you, if you do have a philosophy of how you want to live mm. and how you want to build... When it's gone, it's gone, you know, when it confronts the way you think. So this summer left me wondering about the social effects of climate change too and how massive fires might reshape things. The beach house was the bourgeois dream of the boomer generation, even if it was just an asbestos-filled shack near the water. For Gen X and millennials who have struggled to get into the property market at all, it's more likely to be a rental or an Airbnb by the beach. But heading to the coast is still one of the best things about living in Australia. So what happens when summer is suddenly something to be feared? When it's no longer a trip to the beach so much as 40-degree days, choking smoke haze, animals dying in the forests respiratory problems and uninsurable houses. Will Australians spend the summers cowering in air-conditioned city apartments, another miserable lockdown to sit through? Honestly, I have no idea, but I do wonder if there'll be fewer people like Rod willing to take a risk and build a dream house on a mountaintop. I sit on, a, on, the, on the top of a ridge uh, between two mountains and the wind is sometimes a problem here. Uh, and I knew that a fire from the west and the right circumstances would always be a problem for me. I don't ever think that I really anticipated quite what what a really, really, really hot fire would really do, and it just turned the building to, to ash in, in an hour or so, probably. But, but you'd taken some precautions. Uh, oh, to, to... In nearly every respect, the building was fireproof in so many ways. You know, it was cleared around it extensively. Uh, the, the, it had closed-in eaves and went down to the ground, and there were fireproof construction and fireproof details all over the place. If you've never done any bushfire training, you might not know this, but they tell you that one of the worst places to stand is on top of a ridge. Fire actually travels faster uphill. It makes sense if you think about it. Heat rises. Now, Rod knew it was a bit risky to build here, but you can manage risks, and a place like this doesn't show up every day. But there were parts of it were vulnerable, and I, you know, and I think probably what happened is that the glass broke uh, with the intense heat, 1,500 degrees probably, we think, uh, and that uh, the building probably would have burnt from the inside out. Mm. The only way really to have protected that would have been to have had really extensive shutters over the entire building. But the nature of the building was such that I, having shutters on it would have been very difficult uh, because it was big glass, glass structures as well. And it might see. not have worked anyway. may not have worked. So what exactly do you do after your dream home goes up in flames? You were talking a little bit earlier about your plans to rebuild here. Mm. 
and it sounds, uh, you know, to me that that you are really a little bit shaken by by this whole experience. Oh, completely. I mean, it's uh, I mean, it's like six weeks now, and I've I've initially, you know, you sort of your subconscious at night, uh, you wander around thinking about all the things that you no longer have, and it's it's shocking to think about you know losing absolutely everything in your life in a in an instant. You know, it's a really odd feeling. But after a while, uh, I became accustomed to that. And now, and six weeks after the event, Winston Churchill said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And I really love that idea. I think it's so interesting to say, well, OK, out of this, so this fantastic thing that I had, which has gone completely, what can you do? you stay or do you go? And I've decided to stay, and I've decided to try and make it into something which is a, a model of fireproof construction. And uh, so... Uh, it would be an earth-covered cover, earth construction uh, using masonry materials. Well, uh, you know, while we're on that subject, why don't we head over to your, yeah, your little bunker? That. Yeah, uh, let's you can do that. you can show me that. Yeah. Um, uh, to me, the the whole idea of uh, being right here during a fire um, seems absolutely terrifying. Well, and 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 I evacuated. Yeah. You know, I, I had my my child, my daughter, and her son with me, and so I wasn't prepared to put them at risk. Yeah. Uh, and so we left, uh, and we, I could have come back and saved more than I did, but I didn't. But yeah. this this little bunker here, I had built uh, originally. Uh, it's, an, it's a it's a brick. I mean, I I had collected bricks uh, from uh, brick kilns uh, up at Homebush before the Olympics were constructed years ago. Okay. So these are all wedge-shaped bricks, and they they are designed to be made into barrel vaults or, or to domes. Uh-huh. So this is a small dome with a with a little igloo construction. The idea being that you would get in, but I didn't have a door on it. But, you know, as it is at the moment, it's completely untouched inside. And, the, you know, the temperature out here was very, very hot. You can see what it did to the house. Yeah. And this is perfectly safe. And so this is a model of what it can be. Yeah. yeah. You know? And will this kind of inform your oh, design totally. as you rebuild? Absolutely. Yeah. Does it make you a little bit nervous that it looks like a pizza oven? <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't, you see, because... A pizza oven usually would put a fire inside it and it course, takes a long time to heat up. Yeah. Nobody ever tries to fire up a pizza oven from the outside. Yep, and, so, and, so, and so what you look at, you look at this had heat all around it, everything's charred and wrecked all around it, uh-huh. but inside the pizza oven, you know, this, brick, this, this structure, which yep. is a, a, a refuge, uh, is unburned. Yep. Now, Rod isn't just any architect. He has a specific focus on sustainable architecture. Normally, as soon as someone says sustainability, I tend to switch off because the details of how they installed the grey water system, well, you know, that kind of stuff just bores me to tears. But this house is a bit more compelling than that. It was more or less built entirely of recycled materials, collected from around the state over years and years. Beams pulled from old movie theatres, steel taken from the old Everly workshops where Sydney's rail system used to be serviced. All the windows and doors came from Everly. The steel came from Everly. Uh, How did you go about getting all this stuff? Did you just go to auctions? or Yeah, auctions, and things came up for sale, and people offered things, and every time somebody said something, I've got something, I would just say yes, yeah. and then work out how to, how, to, how to design it into the structure because I, I'd done a lot of recycled buildings, and uh, it was a very interesting thing to do. And um, you have to take whatever you get and then work with the, the finesse is in being able to take things which don't automatically want to go together mm-hmm. and make them fit together and do that with a, in a way that makes the building feel harmonious but also therefore becomes completely unique. Mm-hmm. You, I could never replace this building because no. I'd never get those materials again. You can't go to a shop and buy them.
Coming up, what do the fires mean for Australia's future? The chicken has come home to roost, you know. This is a, a, a changed climate, uh, different weather, and it is drier and hotter and windier and more unpredictable and more dangerous. So uh, is there anything, do you feel, that's incompatible between a sustainable building with recycled materials and one uh, that works well or is, you know, defensive uh, in, in a bad fire situation? Um, you know, this was sustainable in many ways, just because of the way in which it was built and, you know, the materials it used and all that sort of wonderful structure. It was here for a long time. started building in 1988, so that's, you know, I've had 30 years or more of, of, of very happy living in the forest. I mean, there's been fires and I've been, they've all been cool fires and I've survived without any problem at all. I've been burning off here for years and years and years. Every year I burn off and I know how to handle it. But when the big fire comes, when the bad fire comes, you know, that's a big deal. You know, it's massive winds from the west with full of fire and you don't hang around, you know, you get out of the way. And so therefore you say, what I'm saying now is the notion of sustainable practice here Given given that I've lost everything that I had based on the model that was here before, I think a new model is appropriate, and that is to is simply to use non-combustible structure uh, which lives in the environment that you can close down and walk away from it even when the fire is here sitting on top of it. Mm-hmm. Even if it's burning on top of it, it won't burn. Right, but I gather from what you were saying before, um, really the challenge there is to make something that doesn't feel uh, like a bunker, basically. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, underground architecture always has that problem. You know, I, I hate claustrophobic buildings. That's one I, why I had a very airy building before. Uh, I am really dislike claustrophobic things, but they don't work uh, in all sorts of ways for ordinary people anyway because they can be stuffy, not enough ventilation, not enough light, damp. They're in the ground, you know, you feel, you know, it's like living in a cave. It can be like living in a cave, like, you know, wombat, wombat mm-hmm. hollow, if you like. I don't want that. Mm-hmm. So, so it's what a challenge. Will like? Well, it'll, where we're standing here, the, the building will dig right into the mountain here. Uh-huh. Uh, and it will be it will be brick, series of brick vaults, which um, will, you know, have four meter span, something like that concrete floor and um, light at one end which will which will allow the the air to flow with the north from the from the solar north right through the building and pick up and take the air right through the building be well ventilated and you'll have air both ends on this end where it's dug into the mountain there'll be windows will be down low to the ground and I'll be able to put soil against them in case of fire and at the other end of the house I'll use shutters and an appropriate glass system that will enable it Probably those Renlita-type doors which fold in the middle with uh, steel on them and they will also ap- operate as um, uh, shade uh, in, uh, in hot summer. So I have a friend up the coast who's an ecologist. I should say more about my ecologist friend in the next episode, so make sure you listen in. And you said to me recently that all these um, assumptions about uh, fire safety and his own property... Uh, this year have just been completely thrown out the window. Yeah. Um, do you feel that you know many of the assumptions that we've been operating with uh, yeah. are just now completely invalid? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, the the reality I think for for Australia now is that with a drying climate and a hot climate and very very wet, uh, very windy and so on, but very unpredictable weather. 
is that relationship to the natural landscape is going to have to shift uh, and, and we don't know how to manage that and probably uh, being able to do it effectively with ordinary people building ordinary dwellings, being able to afford them to, in order to be able to live um, is going to be very difficult to do but the government really can't impose terribly terrible restrictions on everybody when everybody else in society is still living according to the existing built model. You know, everywhere you look, buildings are, are flammable. Right. And so um, being able to clear more land perhaps or being able to model or to manage it more carefully is going to be important. I'd gone to a lot of trouble here to manage it and uh, it still was not enough. And one of the reasons why it was not enough is because on the other side of the road here is the state forest. And they had promised for three or four years to come and clear that all the way and do backburns right down to the bottom of the mountain, which would have taken all that fuel away, in which case I wouldn't have suffered at all. I know I wouldn't have. But they didn't do it. They came a number of times and it was either too wet or too dry and they didn't touch it. So this is something of a common theme in Australia. Climate change is a long-term problem, but fire is an immediate one. And one possible way to manage it is to reduce the fuel, to burn off the sticks and the twigs in the undergrowth during the cool months so that when the fire eventually arrives, it has less to feed off and won't be so massive or so terrifying. So does it work? Well, it depends. It does get rid of the undergrowth, so in theory it slows some fires down, and that can help. But in the absolute worst conditions, massive fires don't need the undergrowth to spread. They just tear through everything, and many fire authorities said that's exactly what we saw this year. But there's another problem too. Getting it done in the first place is actually really difficult. If it's too cool or too wet, it won't get rid of the fuel. And if it's too dry or hot, well, you might start the fire you were trying to prevent. I spoke to plenty of people who told me they might have been safe if only hazard reduction had been done next to their properties. And many said they'd been trying to get it done for years. It was always too wet or too dry. But here's the catch-22 about climate change. It makes it much harder to do all this because there are fewer days with so-called Goldilocks weather when it's neither too hot nor too cool, neither too dangerous nor too useless. Speaking of weather, something happened while we were discussing the fire, something that had been pretty rare for the previous 12 months. Yeah, and so could you take me through, I guess, those, you know, the, the, those critical few days? Oh, my God, we're going to get some rain. We are. Yeah. So uh, is that good news? Yeah, it's good news. <laughs> Not good news for an interview. Um, but, uh, yeah, when the fire, we were here, so we look out... Now, I'll spare you some of these details because unless you really love maps or you've been to this area, these place names really won't mean much. But suffice to say, the fire circled round for days before it eventually swept up towards Rod's house. And on the day we spoke, the same giant conflagration, many weeks later, was still raging to the south gone all that way and today the fire has gone from the top of Clyde Mountain down to Maruya. Now as it happens I got pretty close to the fire as it approached Maruya. The sky turned dark and the winds were howling and the fire was bearing down on the west end of town. I found a cul-de-sac that sloped down towards a field where there was a grass fire. The main fire was further off shrouded in smoke. A neighbourhood of people were wearing face masks and looking on. A few were on top of their houses hosing down the roof in case embers landed. And in a weird moment of gallows humour, some kids started singing Nellie's It's Getting Hot In Here. How weirdly literal. And then there was the old fella, down the end of the road, watching it all from his mobility scooter. The police came to clear out anyone who didn't live there, including me, but the old bloke, he didn't want to leave. He thought he'd heard somewhere that everything was going to be fine. And it struck me that it's weird how some people make decisions that could be life or death. 
Rod, who cared deeply about everything he'd accumulated over a lifetime, walked away before the fire ever got close. And yet, here was a street full of people prepared to ride it out. Could they save their houses? Would they die trying? Would insurance be enough? Would they be telling a news crew that it's only stuff? As it transpired, there was a man outside of town who died in the fire, but this street was thankfully spared. Again, this is the same fire that took Rod's house, an hour's drive away and months earlier. It would see the way in remote forests and then roar out towards towns and cities. So relentless and massive, and yet it started so small. Gigantic, gigantic area, which originally started in something which was a lightning strike, something like the size of a foot, a, a foot by foot. Before COVID-19 came along, this might have been the biggest story of the year. Our deepening sense of dread about climate change, the ever deeper anxiety that its effects aren't so distant, they're evident right now. And maybe that hasn't changed, but we're a bit distracted at the moment. Rod, for one, thinks there needs to be a re-evaluation. When you think about uh, our own government and um, our approach to where the money gets spent, you know, so... We would we would spend a lot of money on the military here, uh, which is largely ill-equipped to deal with the kinds of natural disasters which we face, mm-hmm. and and well, is confronting an, an 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 enemy which seems not to exist. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're not we uh, our submarines have never fired a torpedo in anger, I would yeah. think, and so you know where that money goes and the people who who are employed to do all of that are largely unavailable to the rest of us when really the it seems to me that the battle of our time is not terrorism or foreign invasion. It's happening something which is our climate within. And, and how do we handle that? And how do we adequately get a handle on managing it and, and each of us living in a way which we can um, uh, afford? So this is very clearly you know, uh, a massive... A wreck. <laughs> yes, uh, and also a massive, you know, life-changing event for you personally. Totally. Do you feel that it's also, uh, you know, I guess, some kind of a tipping point for Australia? And I do. I, I think you know this is, and I think the world has recognised. You know, we've been on the news everywhere. It's clearly a world-shattering event. It, it, it demonstrates the tipping point. I think it demonstrates the idea that climate change is real. And everything that the people have been saying for 20 or 30 years, and all my professional life I taught about sustainability and climate change, and I always felt like I was talking to, a, to, to deaf ears, always felt that. And I had to fight it, had to confront it all the time. And, but it does come, the chicken has come home to roost, you know. This is a, a, a changed climate, uh, different weather, and it is drier and hotter and windier and more unpredictable and more dangerous. Yeah. If it continues to be like it is in any way, uh, this is going to be a, an incredible cost for people to bear in the future. Yeah. I won't be here, but you know, it is an extraordinary idea. I would hate to expect, you know, you've looking at this house is rubble here now. Uh, my house looks like thousands of others which have burned across New South Wales and Victoria over the last month or so. It's, in, it's indistinguishable from all the rest. It just looks like rubble. Uh, and I would hate to think that that was the future that other people had to look forward to. Special thanks to Rod Hayes for sharing his experience. You've been listening to the Humidity Podcast. You can find us on all the major platforms, so please like and subscribe. Search the Humidity on Facebook or find us on Instagram or Twitter 
at the underscore humidity. Find us on Patreon if you'd like to sling some cash at us. The website is thehumidity.sg. We'll be back soon with more, I promise. So listen out.